guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this place as we do week in and week out. Uh, if you're new, my name's Jamie. Uh, I'm the guy around here who most Sundays gets the privilege of opening up the scriptures and unpacking what's there for us in God's word this morning is no different. Um, if you are joining us for the first time, uh, we're currently, just to catch you up to speed, working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, a, a spring series that we'll work through uh, throughout the month of May. We'll finish up moving into the summer, a series entitled Light of the Gospel. This book of the Bible, if you're not incredibly familiar with it, it's a book filled with paradox as Paul talks about things like comfort in affliction, strength in weakness, richness in poverty. It's a book that, as I've said for weeks now, speaks to our struggles with present uncertainty as Paul glories in God's trustworthiness and the certainty of our future in Jesus it's a book that speaks to the beauty of radical generosity, particularly when fueled by God's radical generosity toward us in Christ. It's a book that speaks to our propensity to hide our weaknesses and struggles as Paul helps us to see that God's power is made perfect in weakness. It's a book that speaks to the honor and privilege we've been given as ambassadors for Christ, entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation found in Jesus. A book that has absolutely, radically, forever changed my life, which I'll help to make sense of in just a moment. In fact, if you have a Bible, for the sake of time, you can go ahead and open up to this morning's passage. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the first six verses. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to use one of those Bibles during your time with us. Take it with you as the church's gift to you if you don't own a Bible or have a translation that's difficult to track with in your possession coming in this morning. Let me go ahead and pray for us so we can dive in and get after it. God, please move in these moments to come. We're desperate for you. Spirit of God, I pray that you would give me personally a feeling sense of the very things that I preach. I pray for everyone else in this room Christian and non-Christian alike, that, that you would move, that you would perform a mighty work of your sovereign grace in opening our, opening our eyes to either see you for the first time or to see you for the thousandth time for who you truly are, that we might leave this place seeing and savoring the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, not, not able to simply talk about honey on the basis of what's on the ingredients label, but because we've tasted it. That we would walk out of here saying, I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. I've tasted and seen his glory, his goodness, and his grace this morning in this place. And that we would walk out of here changed as a result of our beholding, to use Paul's language at the end of chapter three. Spirit of God, we invite you to move in power this morning. Apart from your power, this is a hopeless, futile exercise that we are about to endeavor into. So move. May you get the glory, and may the joy be ours. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So roughly 20 years ago, one of my closest friends, his name's Chad, just to give you an idea of the closeness of our relationship, uh, one, he's, aside from my wife, the person that I think he's third on the list in terms of roommates that I've lived the longest with. We were both groomsmen in each other's weddings. He's one of two people, uh, he and my brother-in-law, who about a month ago came and kidnapped me and took me to the Gulf of Mexico for my birthday. This is the kind of relationship 
that, that we have. We've known each other for roughly half of our lives here on planet Earth. And roughly 20 years ago, that friend of mine approached me with a CD in hand. This was uh, in the days when the, the hottest ticket item was the Sony Discman, um, when the cool thing to do was to carry around a collection of burnt CDs, not mixtapes. Um, and he put a CD in my hands, and I, I don't even remember if it had anything written on the top of it or not. I had no idea what I was getting into. And so I got in the car. He told me, I think you should listen to this. And in part, I understand what the thinking was behind it. He knew that I was a very analytical thinker, very drawn to things like apologetics, philosophy, and Christian thought, like to know uh, what's under the hood and how it works, how everything kind of fits together. And so I popped this CD into the CD player of my car and started driving around. It was a sermon on 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Predominantly, verses 4 and 6 were the focus. It was a sermon by a pastor up in Minneapolis named John Piper as a part of a Desiring God National Conference honoring a man named Jonathan Edwards, an old 18th century North American revivalist preacher. And it was basically Piper preaching a sermon entitled A Divine and Supernatural Light, which was a re-preaching of Jonathan Edwards' sermon on this morning's passage entitled A Divine and Supernatural Light Immediately Imparted to the Soul by the Spirit of God. Sounds like a, a title for a song on an indie band album, right? And I, and I drove around, and I think what my, my buddy Chad thought would happen as a result of listening to this sermon is that I would get a better understanding of how God works in saving sinners and that I would walk away going, I, this is amazing. I get the analytics of salvation now. What I don't think he was prepared for or expected to happen was that as I'm listening to this sermon on the way God illuminates dead, darkened, sinful hearts, bringing people from death to life, by shining in their hearts, this miracle that God does, that God would do that in my very own life as I'm listening to this sermon. Because up to that point, the trouble for me, and we'll get, get into this a little bit in this morning's sermon too, particularly verse two, I had encountered an incomplete gospel along the way. Grew up in the South. I had heard the message that Jesus died to save sinners. And I had been given the alternative of hell or Jesus and I decided door number two sounded more appealing than door number one. You could have given me anything behind door number two, and I would have taken it, I think, at that point. But, but no one had explained to me that, that this Jesus who redeems is also the one seated on the throne of heaven who's worthy of our bended knee and glad submission. So I'd never, I'd always thought of this God who, who came to die for me, to save me from my sins, but who was just small enough that I could carry around in my pocket at the same time. And then I listened to this sermon and I realized all of my categories have been blown up in terms of how big this God is, who this God is, and I was forever changed. And so uh, there, there's some level of nostalgia and sentimentality for me as we dive into these verses. I don't expect God to meet you in the exact same way that he met me 20 years ago. Um, I'm always amazed and yet never surprised by the stories shared when we have partner interviews with people going through the partnership process and they share of when they became a Christian and the circumstances and situations are so vastly different from, from each other, and yet the gospel is never changing in that, which is glorious. Um, and so I expect God to meet you perhaps differently than he met me 20 years ago, and yet at the same time, 
the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 have not changed over the course of 20 years, nor has the God who reveals himself in these six verses. And so I expect the same God that met me in a car 20 years ago to meet you this morning in this place. And so with that said, let's just dive in. Verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Paul starts out chapter four with the word therefore, which should always direct our attention to the preceding verses, right? Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. What ministry is Paul talking about? What is he referencing here? Well, going back to last week, he's talking about the ministry of the new covenant established in Jesus's blood. The covenant by which God writes his will on our our very hearts so that we might fulfill his will as we walk by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. A ministry that for Paul was confirmed by the transformed hearts and lives of those in Corinth in direct correlation to their beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which filled Paul with this boldness, with a, with a hope in his proclamation of the gospel where he might have otherwise been driven to despair in the midst of all of his sufferings. Paul declares that the ministry of the gospel keeps him from losing heart. It's a ministry that fills him with hope and not because its success depends on his eloquence, not because its success depends upon his strength, but rather on God's mercy. Paul says, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Paul understands here in verse one that that anything good within him is owing to God's mercy and he understands that anything fruitful that happens through him is owing to God's mercy. He doesn't keep on keeping on in the midst of his struggles and sufferings on the basis of some sort of self-empowered greatness. He keeps on keeping on because he knows that God's ministry will succeed and God's mercy will sustain. And so I think one of the first questions out of the gate for us this morning is, do, do we believe that? Do we believe that anything good that we have and really anything good that we are is owing to God's mercy? Or do we believe in a God that we can put into our debt by by somehow living righteously enough that he might owe us? Do, Do we believe that Jesus will succeed in building his church, that our labor in the gospel is not in vain? Do we believe that God is pleased to give us mercy and grace to help in time of need, Hebrews chapter four, that he's committed to sustaining us by his mercy? In the words of one commentator, Mercy is medicine for the discouraged soul. It reminds us that we can't earn anything with God and that we don't deserve anything with God. That every good gift that we have is an act of his mercy and kindness toward us. Verse two, Paul goes on to say, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's ministry, it's not motivated by book deals. It's not motivated by financial gain. It's not motivated by the approval of man, a desire for increased acceptance and popularity. And what that means is that Paul is truly free. He's not, he's not under any pressure to hide his intentions to tactically cover up his motives, nor is he under any pressure to dilute the gospel, to make the message of Christianity more palatable by watering it down. He's under no pressure to deceive his hearers, 
to manipulate them in order to get what he wants out of them. Think of the many in our very own day and age who have abandoned significant elements of Christian doctrine. The doctrine of sin thrown to the wayside. The doctrine of hell cast aside. The doctrine of God's wrath. The doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement that Jesus would come to pay the penalty for our sin in our place in order to bring us into right standing with God. Think of the many who have distanced themselves from the message of salvation in Jesus Christ alone for fear of being perceived as narrow-minded. Think of the many who have promised health and prosperity to any whose faith is big enough, leaving those in the furnace of affliction embarrassed and ashamed. Think of the many even within the tribes of, of biblical orthodoxy who have taken the Bible out of context in order to fit their agenda, the message that they want to communicate. Paul would go on to write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, Paul says. That there is no other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our message. That's our good news. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no need to distort it. There's no need to dilute it. There's no need to disassemble it. I wish that someone had given me a fuller picture of not only the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, but his glorious lordship long before I was in my 20s. Paul goes on to make crystal clear, moving into verse three, that the gospel is not the problem in terms of sinners beholding the glory of God. Look at verses three and four. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here, here Paul is talking about those who are perishing, the unbelievers declaring that their minds have been blinded to the God of this world, the God of this world being the devil in Paul's language, that the devil and his army of darkness, they're committed to the task of blinding the minds of those who don't love and follow Jesus, according to the apostle Paul, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus being the very visible revelation of God's splendor and majesty. At the same time, According to scripture, we can't solely point the finger at the devil because Paul says elsewhere, Romans 1, that unbelievers by their unrighteousness suppress the truth and are without excuse. In other words, the problem, according to the theology of the apostle Paul, lies with the devil of hell and the depravity of man, not the message of the gospel. John Calvin in his commentary on these verses says, the blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clearness of the gospel, for the sun is no less resplendent because the blind do not perceive it. The gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ is resplendent, to use Calvin's language. It's radiant, it's brilliant, it's dazzling. Which Paul goes on to say in verse five, in different words, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. What, what is Paul's answer in response to the darkness, the blindness around him? It's very simple. It's to exalt, it's to make much of the name of Jesus. 
It's why our mission statement is so simple. Pointing our communities to Jesus. Like five words. Taken from this very verse. Notice that Paul refuses to proclaim himself. He's not the center of his message. He's not out to prop himself up. To glorify himself. And Paul also refuses to distort and, and dilute the gospel. He, he simply commits himself to proclaiming, verse 5, Jesus Christ as Lord. I, I was helped by a few scholars and commentators this week in not glancing too quickly over that phrase, Jesus Christ as Lord. It's in that simple phrase that we come face to face with both the Savior and King. He's the Christ on the one hand, the anointed one, the Messiah, having come to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament through his suffering and subsequent glorious resurrection. He's the Christ, the one having come to bring salvation, the Savior. And he's also, Paul says, the Lord, the exalted King of kings, seated at the Father's right hand, the earth, his footstool. He's both Christ and Lord, Savior and King. That's the creed of Christianity. That's the essence of the gospel. What is Paul's answer in response to the blindness around him? Simply to exalt the name of Jesus. Paul goes on to say in verse six, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's where... Paul ties it all together, giving us this God-entranced vision of the saving of sinners. This is where my heart was absolutely awakened and my mind blown. That going back to last week, to chapter 3, the last verse of chapter 3, we were made to behold. It's what we were created for. Verse 4 and verse 6 parallel each other, and they say it in different words. We were made for the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, verse 4. We were made for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, verse six. That there's no deeper satisfaction in the universe than seeing and savoring God's glory in Jesus Christ. Meaning that the glory of God is not a means to something greater. It's not a stepping stone to something else. Basking in the presence of God's glory is what you and I were made for. It's the deepest, most satisfying joy and experience in all of the universe. There's only one problem. Sinners cannot come into the presence of that kind of glory without being completely consumed, destroyed by God's presence, consumed by his wrath. That's why going back to chapter three, Paul would say that the Israelites were afraid to come near Moses without a veil, his face shining with the radiance of the glory of God. That according to Paul, we need something to have happened Something that we can know. Good news declaring a way for sinners to stand in the presence of the 5,000 degree centigrade holiness of God's glory and not be incinerated in an instant. And according to scripture, that something has happened in and through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. 
The double truth of the gospel, as we've talked about before around here, declaring that not only did Jesus die for our sins, drinking the cup of God's wrath down to the very last drop on our behalf, but he also lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live, his perfect righteousness credited to us sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, so that we can stand in the presence of God's glory and not be consumed in an instant, but rather can enjoy making much of him forever, what we were designed for. That's the good news. That's the gospel, that sinners can stand in the presence of God's all-satisfying glory, what we were made for because of Jesus. But there's another problem. And Paul makes it clear here in verse six that the natural mind may desire to escape hell like me as a kid. The natural mind may desire to be reunited with loved ones The natural mind may desire to be free from guilt and shame. The natural mind may desire to know a world without tears and pain. But the natural mind doesn't want to treasure Jesus Christ above all things. Paul knew that as well as anyone. Paul knew that it, it isn't enough that the gospel be proclaimed. Think about this for a second. Okay, when you read about Paul's conversion story in Acts chapter nine on the road to Damascus, In Acts chapter seven and eight, just before that, we know that the apostle Paul had heard the gospel before his conversion on that road to Damascus as he stood listening to Stephen's speech before approving of Stephen's martyrdom. And yet he wasn't transformed. We can proclaim the gospel, and we should, holding out before others the supremely valuable, intrinsically beautiful Son of God, Jesus Christ, and the blind will continue to walk in blindness unless, verse six, our proclamation is accompanied by a miraculous, creational, illuminating work of God's sovereign grace. We need a miracle to use Edward's language, a divine and supernatural light. We need God to do that thing that he did when he spoke the world into existence, Genesis 1 and 2. We need God to sovereignly declare, let there be light. And according to scripture, according to verse 6 of this morning's passage, that's exactly what God does in saving sinners. It did happen to Paul. The illuminating light of God having come on the road to Damascus where God shone in the heart of Saul of Tarsus. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that allusion to creation, Paul says, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the gospel, verse four, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's how anyone is converted. God's miraculous, creational, illuminating work of regeneration. To use the longer sermon title, a divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God. And by way of that glorious miracle, we see Jesus for who he truly is. The treasure hidden in a field. The pearl of great price eyes to see and savor the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, a heart to treasure him above all things. If you're not a Christian, my prayer is very simple. It's that God would perform that miracle, declaring as he did in the very beginning, let there be light. And like light in the creation story, the eyes of your heart would respond with a hearty, you got it, God. 
What else can I possibly do in response to the mighty voice of the divine? I will now see and savor Jesus. And if you are a Christian, I don't know anything to call you to other than marveling and praise this morning. There's no action except simply to praise God for making a way for you to bask in the presence of his glory with no fear of wrath because of the finished work of your wrath-bearing Savior, Jesus Christ. To praise God for shining in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We say it all the time. You're a walking miracle, a recipient of the miraculous, creational, illuminating work of God's sovereign grace. Which, by the way, going back to verse four, is an absolute slap in the face of the devil of hell, proving he and his blinding work to be subservient and subordinate to our sovereign God, amen? And so I just invite you this morning to to do just that, to praise, to marvel, to behold, to use the eyes that you've been given by God's grace to treasure, to see and savor this glory of God, that you don't know what honey is like by simply reading the label. You know what it's like because you've tasted it, Christian. So we get an opportunity now to worship this great God, this Savior and King, this God who who wouldn't leave the barriers up preventing us from knowing and tasting and experiencing and basking in his glory, but would give us the gospel of Jesus Christ in making a way for us to stand in that presence and shining light on our hearts so that we might know the wonder of salvation. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship in a few different ways through our collective song, which we do each and every week. What a great opportunity to just sing to this God who's so much bigger, so much more glorious, so much more gracious, so much more good than than we really truly know. You have an opportunity to receive a communion this morning. We take communion here, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. What a great opportunity to just pause and marvel at the gospel our message of a crucified and resurrected Savior. There'll be people in the back of the auditorium to pray with and for you if you'd like prayer for anything as it pertains to maybe this morning's passage or anything beyond the bounds of these six verses that we've looked at this morning. Our prayer team would love to come alongside of you and and pray with and for you and lift you up to this, this throne of mercy and grace. Coming back to verse one, that we might taste and know of God's mercy all the more. Thank you.